This week on Writers Inc. I mean, who knew that we were going to evolve society to this point where there's such antagonism and hatred of, you know, the outgroup, whether we're, you know, right wing or left wing, we absolutely despise and belittle the others, and or whether we're, you know, pro vax or anti vax or pro ecological or anti. This is wall that we're not seeing beyond just now with with the enemy on the other side. And I think a part of that is, as you say, it's to do with the fact that in late capitalism, if you like, it's very hard to distinguish yourself from everyone else. It's very easy to feel really average, right? We can all sit on our asses and get paid a certain amount of money and watch Netflix and play computer games and get stuff delivered by Amazon. And we're all kind of the same in that. So again, I think like apocalyptic beliefs and conspiracy theories come in then and give us a sense of being special. But it is hard in the modern world to not feel like you're just very, very average. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets, what does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hey, it's Christine Daigle here. It's J.P. Reinflush. Hey, and this is J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. Um, so I feel like deja vu. We're at day 62 of the HarperCollins strike, so nothing there has changed. Um, but we've got some new faces here. So everybody's heard from Christine before. J.P., why don't you introduce yourself and tell people who you are? Yeah, I'm J.P. Reinflush, a writer of things dark, strange, and queer. Uh, I'm an indie author. I love co-writing and community. Cool. And J.P. used to be my co-host on the Serial Fiction Show yes. before I came over here, so so happy to have him with us. Yes, so you guys nice gonna to see you again, you going to relapse into Serial Fiction? No, we yes, won't sing any Queen for you, I promise. <laughs> we might. We might. I, I actually heard that. Like Christine sent me like I, I asked her for like a, a, a sample of what JP sounds like on the air, and the one she sends me is, is you singing Queen. Um, that was so like a goodbye. <laughs> we had to have a little fun. The going one that on she could pick episode. on me with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not a whole lot going on in, in news this week, other than the Harper Collins strike, and I, I've got no clue at this point where that's going. A lot of people are, are working, um, so I've got a feeling that that may be how this gets resolved. I think people are just crossing that line, and it might get to the point where the strike just falls apart, or they might start just filling those vacancies over there. Um, but Harper Collins is obviously not grinding to a, a, the halt. I think that everybody expected it to. Um, Aside from that, it's been really quiet. I'm, I'm still trying to wrap up this book that I've been working on for, I guess, a better part of about six months now. Uh, I, I basically, I'm on the very last chapter, and I'm, I'm trying something. I don't know if you guys have ever tried this before, but it, it's the, the book itself is done, so this is like a chapter just to sort of wrap it up. I, and I like to throw in an extra twist at the end. Um, so I'm actually writing four different endings, and I'm doing it all at the same time, um, which I know makes me probably weird. But this is something I got out of a conversation with, with Patterson, um, and he basically said he does this sometimes. Sometimes when he's not quite sure how to end a book, you know, he'll just he'll rattle off one ending. And if you get stuck, you kind of move on and work on the other one. And, you know, you get stuck there, you work on the next one. And sooner or later, one of them starts to scream at you as, as being the right one. And I, I kind of got that feeling today with what I was I was doing. But do, do you guys have uh, the ending in mind? And when I say ending, I mean, like literally the last two or three pages, like, you know, exactly how you're going to end that book when you get there or do you just kind of wing it. 
I usually know like what my climax is going to be, but like what the actual ending ending is going to be, I often don't. So, you know, I haven't purposely written for at the same time, but I have written four plus endings to different things once I get there and go, ah, this, this isn't quite working. I've got to do something else. But I like that idea. You can kind of try them all at the same time because I like working on different projects when I get stuck. So it sounds like a great idea. I, I've honestly, like I did that with Caller's Game um, and I got pushed into it because I, I sent the book off to my beta readers and they all weighed in and they were fine with my original ending. And I sent it off to my agent and she's like, oh, this ending's not going to work. Um, so I started writing a new one for her and then my film agent got back to me with the ending that I wrote for her and he's like, well, this won't work. It's new. We won't be able to film it. It's too expensive. Um, so I had to write another one based on that. So I ended up with six different endings for that particular book. Um, and the final one was actually pretty close to what I originally had. And it, honestly, my biggest problem is, you know, like the ending should be, you know, kind of like tying everything up in a nice, le- neat little bow. If you're not doing a series, like this is a standalone book. So nothing really should continue on. But sometimes I just can't help myself. You know, so I've got my list of, you know, threads that I need to close up, characters I just need to, you know, this person is doing this right now. This person's doing that. Um, you know, I try to nail all those things so there's no open questions anymore for the reader. Um, but then I just, I can't help but throw in one little twist, you know, like something just to kind of grab their attention, you know, on that very last page or right before it. Um, and, you know, I, I love the way that reads. I love it when I run into it as a as a, a reader. Um, but at the same time, then I get these comments from readers thinking that it's going to be the series. It's going to be a series. It's going to continue. And I don't necessarily want to do that. Um, so we'll see. But that's kind of where I'm at with it right now. Uh, yeah, I like I like the idea of kind of bouncing ideas off of other people. So generally, I'll have an idea as to what my endings look like. Uh, I might have a rough sketch of it, but that's really where like the whole co-writing and, and even just working with other authors. I mean, I bounce ideas off of Christine all the time towards an ending because I want to see what those emotional hits are um, from people that I trust. So that's why I'm really a big proponent on, you know, making sure that I have a pretty strong author community that I can lean on. Do you do you use beta readers? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Th- those are kind of like, you know, a little bit later down the line. By the time that I have that ending in mind, um, they pretty much, you know, won't deviate much from where I'm at. So I'm curious if you do anything with those alternate endings that don't make it to the book. Do you use them for like reader bonuses or do you just check them? I've done that before. So with Fourth Monkey, I, I wrote what we call the lost chapter now, which is uh, do you guys know who Garth Brooks is? Yep. So this is probably digging back for a couple of years for for some people. Garth Brooks was probably one of the biggest country singers out there. Um, And he used to do this thing. He had two different songs where he actually had verses that they cut out, like that he had written. They recorded them. um, But in order to keep the link down for radio, they they cut them out. And the only time you could actually hear those verses was in concert. And he swears to this day that was one of the reasons why he had such a huge turnout at a lot of his shows. People people would come to hear those alternate verses because it was the only place you could get them. Um, So I tried to do that with with this sort of thing with fourth monkey, I basically have what I call the lost chapter. Um, and it didn't need to be in the book. I mean, the, the book ended on a you know, perfect note, but I just, I felt like I wanted to just do one more thing. Um, so I, I wrote that and it works, you know, as part of the book. But, um, other than that, like I just, I, we pulled it out because of length, um, and just kind of set it aside, uh, where those come in handy is when you start doing television and film, um, particularly TV, you know, a lot of my projects right now, they're working on series, um, you know, eight episodes, 10 episodes, that kind of thing. And they want material that didn't make the book. They want something different. They don't want to film the book page per page because that's that's boring, you know, especially for somebody you know, somebody may love the book, but that doesn't mean they're going to want to watch the exact same thing play out on TV. It's it's nice when it's different. Um so I I, I keep all those things for for that sort of thing. 
Yeah, one of my favorite um, book to series was The Magicians on Sci-Fi because they took the concept and it is a 100% different story. It's as if it's an alternate timeline. Um, and I felt like it kept the heart of what that story told while still being its very own unique thing. And I think that that's like one of the coolest things to have seen done. Yeah, a, a current example of that is um, the interview with the vampire series that's there in right now based on Anne Rice's stuff. Mm-hmm. They, they basically they kept the main story intact, maybe five to guess, maybe 70 percent of it. Um, but then they, they just took the characters and kind of ran off in a few different directions with them, which is, is nice. I'm, I'm getting ready to start uh, Mayfair Witches probably tonight. I'm not I'm a huge Anne Rice fan. Um, and I, I like it when they do that, because, you know, again, like who wants to watch something that, you know, if you already know exactly what's coming up, it's, you know, it's entertaining. But, you know, that's where I find myself looking at my phone and, and doing other stuff. I've got this thing playing out in front of me. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So, um, yeah, I've been busy this week. I just got my Ingram Spark proof today. They give you like a happy book birthday email, which is cool because I've never indie published before. This is my first time doing indie and wow, it's like running your own small business. I don't realize like how spoiled mm-hmm. you are when you do a book with a, a traditional or small press. Um, but yeah, and now I'm just doing arc readers and things like that. So I am giving limited arcs away. If anyone's a sci-fi fan, contacts in the show notes. How about you, JP? What have you been up to this week? Uh, well, yesterday I just got uh, my next shipment of uh, book twos and I was actually running low on stock because I keep them in some of my local bookstores. Uh, so that's really nice to finally get those. But I totally get your feels for the, you know, indie indie world. It's a uh, I think I ordered them almost like a month and a half ago. So that was fun. Um, But yeah, other than that, things have been going great. Uh, Lots of uh, work on my two serials. I'm getting ready to um, relaunch the co-authored one with uh, Jeff Elkins. It's called Nerds. It's really fun. So I can't wait for that. Cool. So JD, who's up this week? Uh, this week, we've got Ewan Morrison, um, Irving Welsh. He's the author of Trainspotting. He called Morrison one of the most provocative, intelligent and original novelists working today. Uh, his latest novel is called How to Survive Everything, and he'll, um, he's going to tell us all about it. And, and I did confirm this was option for television um, about two, three weeks ago. So that's coming, too. Uh, so here he is, uh, Ewan Morrison. You have a new book, How to Survive Everything. It's a darkly comic thriller about a teenager abducted by her father who believes the world is ending. A pandemic novel during a pandemic. Can you tell us a bit more about how to survive everything? Um, how to survive everything? Well, it is, it kind of playfully um, is a variation on the prepper handbook. You know, like a survivalist prepper handbook has all these chapters on, you know, how to get fresh water, how to sew up your own wounds with dental floss how to you know uh create a sling out of duct tape and you know i read lots of these things because i became quite obsessed with them back in 2013 when my wife and i were working on a tv show called american blackout which was about um well it became one of the sort of uh, top 10 films of the of the prepper doomsday prepper slash survivalist canon um so yeah, we got really into this the whole prepper thing, find it fascinating. So the novel is a playful take on the survivalist novel, uh, you know, uh, manual handbook. Um, and it's it's so it's it's like written, if you like, by the girl who's abducted, 15-year-old called Haley Cooper Crow, who's a sort of standard teenager who really doesn't want to take part in anything particularly dramatic. 
Um, but her father, he's, uh, you know, he's been divorced from the family and she only sees him once every, once a week. Uh, he's been secretly working away with a bunch of uh, doomsday preppers up in the Highlands because um, he's been preparing for, you know, the big one in what he thinks is, is now the pandemic era, the era in which all number of genetically modified viruses will be unleashed on the world. Um, so he's, uh, yeah, he's decided to abduct his two kids from his ex-wife. Uh, and it just it so happens that it coincides with a night of sleepover. Yeah. Um, so he sort of bundles the kids into the car five in the morning and tells them he's got a surprise for them. And uh, Haley, being the sort of half asleep, super smart teenager, starts to work out that something's not quite right. Um, but it's only once she gets locked inside a, a fortified, um, uh, I guess it's a like it's a bit like a castle, but it's really like a farm that's just been heavily fortified over the last number of years. Once she and her brother Ben are locked inside there, she realizes it's kind of too late to do anything about it, uh, and and the story really kicks off from there. Right. So she writes this kind of how to survive guide, which tells you what to do and then shows how she fails miserably at it. Yeah, right. Which had me laughing. Yeah. So it's going to be like ironic set of chapters as well, like, you know, how to tell lies and how to, uh, you know, how to how to deceive people, how to make decisions that you don't want to and all that, all that kind of stuff, along with, you know, how to perform home surgery mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and you know how to shoot a crossbow without hurting yourself and all these other things that she has to learn reluctantly along the way yeah so it's i guess it's 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 got this kind of tone of of kind of dark humor and irony to the whole thing yeah i appreciated that and i know in the past that you uh, are big on experiential writing so you've been yeah. You know, a swinger and a secret shopper and a new age convert. Tell me a bit more about that. And how did that play into this novel? That's a funny one. Yeah. I, someone once told me that I, I write fiction the way that Hunter S. Thompson used to write um, nonfiction. So he was known as a gonzo journalist. Yeah. So he would just throw himself into some horrible experience so he could write about it. Um, I remember a horrific one where he called up a girlfriend of his and said, like, Samantha, I need you to come out tonight and get a tattoo. And she's like, what kind of tattoo? What do you mean? And he's like, oh, about two foot square on your back. You know? <laughs> and he's like, she's like, why? He says, so I can see what the suffering's like so I can write about it. <laughs> she's like, okay. <laughs> so he got her a huge tattoo of Black Panther, I think, on her back. Um, and that became a big article he did. Uh, anyway, so I think I'm like that, but I would be the person who got the tattoo, actually. Um, so I don't really know why it started out like this, I guess. You know, that thing about write what you know. Mm -hmm. I guess if I was to write what I knew, it wouldn't amount to much. So I've always, I thought it's good advice, though, to write what you know. So I've always tended to be drawn into experiences that are kind of a bit out of the norm a bit beyond the actual, um, you know, what, what normal people would do. So, so um, swinging or being a menage a trois or being a new age convert. Um, I should probably say, I think it's probably because I was kind of cast adrift as a kid because my parents were really quite extreme hippies. 
So I had no, I had no real boundaries and didn't really fit in. So on the one hand, you could say, ah, Ewan's got this quest for belonging somewhere. That's why he goes and, you know, joins a hippie commune and hugs trees and stuff and why he tries to have sex with, you know, couples and uh, all this kind of stuff. Um, I guess it's like finding where the parameters of existence are. And I guess part of the flip side of that is that my parents being these hippies in the 1960s, they were pretty obsessed with uh, like nuclear war and apocalypse and stuff like that. So I had a, a kind of fearful superstitious thing by the end of the world growing up with them as well. And I, as a kid, I made my own nuclear bunker after my dad took me to see this banned film. It was a government film that the British government had made. Um, it was to show people what to do in the case of a nuclear war. Or rather, it was a series of short films that were supposed to come on just after the news, kind of infomercials sort of stuff. But they were just deemed to be too horrifying. And they were hidden away in an archive. I mean, they were really crazy. They were a bit like, um, they commissioned a guy to do them who was a cartoonist, a children's cartoonist. And it's a bit like having like, uh, well, I guess it was a bit like the duck and cover things in America, you know? We had like a really sweet little cartoon and really horrific information, you know, what to do to protect yourself from a nuclear blast, <laughs> you know, hide under some tables, um, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, I was pretty obsessed with that as a little hippie kid, you know, being anti-nuclear and also building my bunker. Uh, and and I, I probably went further into that little, you know, when kids, other kids are probably building little huts in the forest, whatever. I was stacking up on batteries and cans of beans and torches and tinfoil and working out whether or not I could fit my grandmother in my bunker or whether <laughs> I have to choose the dog instead. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, this whole thing of experiential writing, um, I guess I was sort of thrown into it by having quite a, a rootless hippie childhood you know not really fitting in anywhere and then having to find the extremes like having to find the boundaries of what people do um and i guess maybe there was a certain kind of crazy freedom involved in that as well like like or maybe a foolish courage to go and try things out but i mean i've always been really drawn to you know see it might seem crazy but i see a, a correspondence between swingers and terrorists and conspiracy theorists and doomsday preppers they're all people who are sort of living on the edge mm -hmm. um in fact the book preceding this one was called nina x and it was about a, a, a cult of marxist revolutionaries who keep this kid hidden away from the rest of the world um yeah so i guess i'm always drawn to these kind of nuts and, and and trying to find trying to find sort of common way into them so a way that we can understand that there's a bit of us in people that live on the extremes as well yeah and and it's kind of interesting you know it's people living on the edge in communities of people living on the edge uh, which which is interesting because it's not just one person doing that there's these whole kind of fringe communities so i i see that coming up you know, in your writing and your themes, you're talking about, you know, how to be an individual versus what it's like not to be an individual or what it's like to have no human agency, to have this epiphany about your powerlessness. I think in your book, you said uh, 
we are just meat in motion. Where do you think that comes from? Why are you so interested in exploring that? <laughs> yeah, no, I guess. Oh, God, that's a really good question, actually. Ah, I, I think it all probably goes back to childhood again. I had some pretty um, destabilizing experiences as a child, you know. So I discovered I had zero agency and zero freedom. I was like, the my kids, my parents decided to put me into school one year early. And so I was one year younger than everyone else and like good nine inches shorter and a lot weaker. And, you know, I went to school and, you know, I had long heavy hair and sandals and, you know, the kids were pretty, I think we could say the kids were mean. Mm-hmm. And so the kids were mean for a good five years and I developed a stammer, like, I think you call it a stutter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I had a I had a I had a, a gendered slur that was used to, to you know, people just knew me by that name. Hmm. Right. So I had I, I was kind of like the runt, really. I mean, a kid you these days you would think that there's a kid in danger, you know. Um, but I guess I learned to uh I learned to be creative as a way to compensate for that. So, and being creative and being successful, I used to make like little like Play-Doh models and plasticine models that then went on to win awards. And I used to do paintings that won awards and people were like, who is this freak? And why is he good at these things? So being that kind of oddball that didn't fit in, I learned to develop agency through being creative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really just been a battle with me and the world since then, like how, how to fit in given I've had such a sort of horrible uh, beginning and, and, and how do I, I guess I'm drawn to the idea of like alternative little societies that might be places where I could belong, I suppose. Um, so in, on one hand, it's, 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 it's very personal, but on the other hand, I just find writing about these alternative societies and their own little rules fascinating like whether that's a group of marxists who live in total isolation have got their own rarefied jargon that they use you know everything's problematic and blah 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 blah, blah you know and, and you know uh all of the all of the because i myself was was a marxist for for quite some time um i'm part of a revolutionary group as one of my attempts at belonging um so you have that, and then you've got also the swingers and their jargon and their their ways of behavior. And preppers, I think, are probably the most extreme example of these sort of like jargonized, insular, you know, protected groups. You're actually, you know, they they're so cut off from other people, and they're so deceptive around other people that you know, they refer to other people as sheeple. You know, like everyone, everyone outside our group is is going to die. The prepper thinks, you know, when the when the meteor strikes, or the floods come, or the the great pandemic, you know, um, yeah. So, so I guess uh, I've always been drawn to this of the dynamic of these little secret societies and their secret jargon that they have and their 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 funny, you know, behavioral patterns of inclusion and exclusion. And it's a real challenge to sort of write that stuff as well, because you've got all these different personalities um, within these groups, but they're they're all sort of tied towards, you know, tied together in the jargon. Um, you know, Haley uh, in How to Survive Everything really struggles as an, uh, she's like an insider. She's a normal person, but she's thrown into a bunch of outsiders. 
And so she has to learn all the language of prepping survivalists, whatever. And she's like, really? You say that you cock your crossbow? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, all, you know, all that sort of jargon, chain of command is another cock word. <laughs> <laughs> There's all these acronyms that she has to learn. She, she loads it and laughs at the whole thing. Um, but she eventually becomes part of that sort of um, secret society of, of, let me see, how many people are there? S seven or eight, I can't recall. Yeah, in the book, in this farmhouse cut off from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And so it really looks like you have a fascination with unraveling this utopian or, or apocalyptic mindset. Why do you think we cling to hope that collectives and utopian projects will work? <laughs> Wow, you've come to the right guy on that. Um, I, um, I I actually wasted or spent rather a couple of years reading pretty much all of the utopian books, all all the works of fiction. It's not hard to do because there's so few. Um, compared to, I'd say there's 120 books in the entire utopian canon, and there are probably 50,000 every year in the dystopian canon. So humans seem much more attuned to dystopia than we are to utopia. It's very, very hard for us to imagine a utopia. And what I've found as well is, um, so H.G. Wells, um, as George Orwell said, H.G. Um, Wells wrote five amazing books at the start of his career, then threw the rest of his life away trying to imagine a utopia. He wrote endless variations on utopias that could be acted out. He was obsessed with bringing utopia around. You know, after writing The Invisible Man and War of the Worlds and these, you know, amazing stories, he wrote these incredibly dry, boring, futuristic utopian books. And he even went to see Joseph Stalin. And there's a famous conversation that was printed between Stalin and H.G. Uh, Wells where H.G. Wells is rather the fool and, and accuses Stalin of being less left-wing and less utopian than he is. He wasn't, of course, aware of the millions of people Stalin had killed at that point. But um, one thing I found in the, um, in the history of utopian fiction is it cheats. It cheats all the time with the use of adjectives. So it describes things as beautiful, as sumptuous, as perfect, as blah, blah, blah. It's just squeezing in lots of positive adjectives to try to um, make a utopian world seem like a better place. And you get things like, you know, lions that don't bite and, and nobody gets sick and all these really, really impossible things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and utopian fiction is actually extraordinarily boring to read. Because nothing happens in utopia. It's like someone once said, "Heaven's a place where nothing ever happens." It's the same with it's the same with utopia. I think I think we're still drawn to the idea. I think we should probably give up the idea of utopia, because for sure, every time we try to make one, and I'm you know I'm looking there in the 20th century. I can think of a couple off the top of my head. I mean. Like Jonestown was, you know, the, the Jim Jones massacre. That was seen as like a left-wing, you know, third world utopia. They were going to create a brand new paradise in the jungles. Um, you know, Ford as well, 
who invented the Model T Ford also tried to create a, um, a utopia in the jungles as well called Fordlandia. They both ran into terrible, terrible trouble. Then of course, you've got the German utopia, which was the Third Reich. And, and, and you know, you've got the, you got the communist utopias. Um, oh, many versions of that all were genocidal and terrible. So we should probably just, I thought we kind of had actually in the 90s, we had kind of put utopia away in the 90s, yeah? yeah. And all that postmodern theory. Yeah. We were like, we're not going to buy into these grand narratives of human perfection. and all that. But they started creeping back in again. Um, and I think it might just be, it must be human wiring. It must be that we're, that we dream of some solution to all the things. We get so hacked off with, with just having to suffer from all these terrible things like ego and competition. I think interpersonal competition is one thing that really drives us nuts all the time, unless we're winning. So we start to fantasize about a world in which there's no competition, you know, in which everyone's going to be equal. Right. How you enforce that, you know, no one's managed to do that without building a gulag or bloodshed or brainwashing. But right. um, I think we just come back to it. I mean, I've, I, you know, I was raised by utopian parents and um, it kind of taught me an early age that, yeah, utopia just doesn't work out, guys. Um, but I'm, I'm utterly obsessed with it. And I often try to write stories about people who believe in utopias and try to set them up. And then, and then they, they start to fall apart. So Close Your Eyes, the hippie commune book, that's, that's very much about, about that. And it's about how um, a child of a, of a new age collective um, comes back after 20 years and the whole thing's turned into a sort of profitable new age thing where you pay like 700 bucks for your shiatsu massage and your crying session and your grip hug or 800 bug that, you know, bucks and you can, you know, you can go and commune with the crystals or whatever. It's, it's a become a real sellout, you know? Um, so yeah. And, you know, again, the, the idea in Nina X, the novel is, is that you've got this, these communists who separate from the rest of the world and try to raise, you know, Lenin's perfect child, you know, the new communist man or, you know, this little girl who's, 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 who's called Nina and they, they can teach her how to be politically perfect in every way. And uh, they actually end up causing neurological damage to her. So yeah, it's a, it's a big thing for me. And, um, and it, you know, it's an endless source of material as well. The whole yearning for utopia. Yeah. And, you know, I, now that you're thinking about it, I'm trying to think about all the utopian books and they're usually utopia gone wrong, like, you know, Brave New World or um, Kurt Vonnegut's story about the guy with the bird shot on him. I forget what it's called. And um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Harrison, Harrison <laughs> Bergeron. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's usually the other way, right? We're exploring the the dystopian and the apocalypse mm. and, and um, you know, you do a little bit of both here. You've got Meg in your book, who is an apocalypse addict. She's believed in... <laughs> Nuclear war, global overpopulation, <laughs> global flooding, oil running out, getting hit by a yeah. meteor, you know. <laughs> Tell me about this apocalypse addict mindset. I mean, that was fascinating. Have uh, you gone through oh, that yeah. in your own life or? 
Oh, it was someone I came across when I, when I was involved years ago with the New Age um, Collective was this person who who would just who over the years had moved from one kind of apocalypse to another. Mm-hmm. So I, I think um, she was she was a baby boomer and on the older side of the baby boomer. And so she'd originally start off with um, global cooling and then there was the population explosion and then she got more into um, you know the the Y2K thing, and then she got into the Nirabu 2012. You know that's the the planet that was supposed to crash into Earth. And I just I, I remember asking her. I said, "Well, look, it seems the form stays the same, but the content changes. It's like you're slotted. It's like you have an apocalypse need, mm-hmm. and you just slot in different things. And you know, for most folk, that would cause a bit of." you know, cognitive dissonance, you'd go like, hold on, I just believed in global cooling and now I believe in global warming. You know, uh, I, I'm clearly just addicted to the idea that the world's going to end. Well, I mean, I find I find with her that she was nonetheless a really happy person in much the same way that you find with, I guess, really devout Christians who believe that the end of the world's coming. I mean, Christ himself and his followers, they believed the world was coming in their own time, right? Mm-hmm. And there's been, a, I think, 128 instances since Christ of Christian groups who think the world's coming in our generation. And of course, we're still here and they failed every time. But it gives, there's something about believing in the end of the world that could give your life paradoxically a purpose. I think on the one hand, it's, you feel like you're really special. You know, you're the elect. You're the only people who know. And you're going to be ready. Whether you believe in heaven or an afterlife or a reward, or you just believe in, like, facing the end, um, you know, it gives you this sort of advantage over the other people, the non-believers, the sheeple, mm-hmm. the sinners. And also, I think, you know, even, even ecologists have, have got the secret part extreme extreme ecologists who believe in the end of the world there's a little bit inside there that actually wants the end of the world to happen and i think it's something to do with i've been reading a lot by a chap called ernest becker he was a theorist he wrote the denial of death very good um analysis of how our denial of death motivates us i think there's a bit of ego involved in the idea of the end of the world as well imagine if how awful it is to die and then for everyone to go on living after you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, generations and generations of people who will go on and forget you. You know, it'll you'll be you'll be unless you're like one of the top hundred people in the history books, you're gonna be forgotten. But wouldn't it be just great if it all ended within your generation? It's like it's a great leveler, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I never thought about it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like I don't have to worry about my death as much. My own personal death, which is my own trauma, if every single thing is going to die, you know. So it's a dark, it's a dark part of the human imagining, if you like. But I think it, yeah, it's just there's some there's some ego in there. I think the ego never wants to die. It would rather that everyone died rather than it faced its own solitary death. And I think there's this special status that you get when you're a believer in the end. I think it's mostly those two things. Yeah. 
kind of that individual, I guess everyone wants to be an individual in a world where none of us are really individuals. <laughs> oh, no, that's so true. I, that's such such a huge problem for us just now. I, I think that explains why so many of us spend our time attacking other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knew that we were going to evolve society to this point where there's such antagonism and hatred of, you know, the outgroup, whether we're you know, right wing or left wing, we absolutely despise and belittle the others and, or whether we're, you know, pro-vax or anti-vax or pro-ecological or anti, this is wall that we're not seeing beyond just now with, with the enemy on the other side. And I think a part of that is, as you say, it's to do with the fact that in late capitalism, if you like, um, it's very hard to distinguish yourself from everyone else it's very easy to feel really average, right? I mean, we kind of, we can all sit on our asses and get paid a certain amount of money and watch Netflix and play computer games and get stuff delivered by Amazon. And we're all kind of the same in that. So again, I think like apocalyptic beliefs and conspiracy theories come in then and give us a sense of being special, Right. you know, but it is hard in the modern world to not feel like you're just very, very average. Yeah. And I think with the younger generation, you know, all trying to get YouTube and TikTok famous, we kind of see that phenomenon yeah. going on. Everyone wants to be known as an individual. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, there's that, there was a great cartoon in the 1960s about that. It was like a whole bunch of bungalows, like 50 bungalows, identical bungalows. And they all ha- they're all exactly the same. And they had a little speak bubble coming out of each of them. And the speak bubble said, I'm an individual. So like every single one of them was an individual. There's also that Monty Python joke in um, the life of Brian as well, where, where Brian says, you know, think for yourselves. Don't follow me. You're all individuals. And this quiet in the, in the huge crowd that's gathered. And one person goes, I'm not. yeah i love that so assuming Mm. that the world is not going to end in our lifetime and things are going to go on i have one final question okay if you could offer a piece of advice to new and aspiring authors what would you say oh i think it is to get away from this idea that writing is typing um, so I guess now it was a wonderful re- uh, review that Truman Capote once wrote. I can't remember. It was a very famous book he reviewed and he said, this isn't writing, this is typing. Um, and I think a lot of the advice young people get is just write and write and write and write and develop a schedule and get up at the, you know seven in the morning, work till blah, 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 blah. And to me, that all seems a bit like factory work. It all seems a bit like, I mean, I guess the thing is, is to see each book as a project, you know, rather than seeing that you're putting in the hours, turning up at the at the, at the factory of you, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's better to be focused on, you know, what is the truth of this problem or the question that I'm grappling with here? And when will I know that I've reached the end of that? What's... Yeah, just this, it's very motivating to be working on something as a project and for every book to be an, a separate project, you know? And, and and like, just as you wouldn't want, say, the project of a home conversion, you know, to fail, you won't want your book 
you know, to fail. Um, so, yeah, I think to get away from this mechanistic idea that it's going to magically appear by putting in the hours and just to put your heart and your soul into working on a book as a project, I think that's that's a really important thing. It certainly works for me anyway. That's great advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Christine. So I want to know, how do you think an apocalypse would most likely happen? <laughs> You know, it's funny, like um, the one thought that he actually threw out there about that, that that got me is like, you know, in the ideal apocalypse, in your personal ideal apocalypse, would you rather everybody is gone, like the entire planet is just wiped clean? Or would you rather be one of, you know, the the, the handful in this little pocket of survivors? Um, me personally, like I'm just too in, into creature comforts at this point in my life. Like, I don't think I want to live in a world that doesn't have, you know, a grocery store down the street and air conditioning and heating and all that stuff. Um, so I think I would rather go in that initial blast. Um, I'm literally a half mile away from a naval base, so I'm pretty sure that if it's a man-made apocalypse, I'm I'm probably not going to see much more than a big flash. Um, but what about you guys? I'm like you. I'm like, I'm not into that. I want to do this survivalist mindset. Like, I know some people find that really exciting, but I'm like, no, just take me out. Take me out quick so I don't know what happens. <laughs> and I'm like, I am totally fine with that. <laughs> I don't want to do any prepping or surviving. I like my grocery store. <laughs> That's insane to me. I would honestly be living my best life in the woods uh, with some house that no one can find. Uh, I would definitely become like that little forest cottage witch that no one ever goes to because they're afraid they're going to get murdered and stories will be made of me. That's what will happen. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, Ewan was like a super interesting guy. We just, you know, chatted like we were old friends immediately. And um, I really thought it was interesting how he talked about deliberately engaging in these wild experiences so he could write about them. Have you ever done anything like that deliberately? Um, I've had a lot of wild, ex wild experiences. Um, I've jumped out of airplanes. I've been shot. Um, I've been stabbed. Um I should probably explain what happened there. Um, when I when I was a kid, we we our house was in the middle of a forest. My dad literally bought a forest and built our house in the middle of it. A lot of people would go out into that forest and they would go deer hunting. Um, so I was playing with my friends. I think it was I was about seven years old, seven and a half or so. Um, and somebody took a shot at me, thinking I was a deer. Luckily, they hit the tree like right next to me, and then the ricochet caught the the back of my leg because it was um it, it, it basically I've got a nice little scar from that. Um, I was stabbed delivering pizzas of all things. I used to deliver pizzas in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and, and I learned like, first of all, pizza delivery is an awesome job. If you've never actually done it, you you should, because you get to just hang out in your car and, and, you know, you're basically your own boss. But the first time I did it, I worked on Fort Lauderdale beach and the tips were insane because everybody's on vacation and they're just throwing money around left and right. Um, and then I moved to another store, which was in like the worst part of Fort Lauderdale, literally in the middle of the hood. I was delivering to drug dealers on street corners. Um, but the thing is, drug dealers also tip very well. They will give you $50, $100 or whatever for bringing a pie to their, you know, their particular corner because nobody else will go there. Um, but one day I was returning from a, one of those deliveries. I was at the back door of the Pizza Hut keying in my little code to get inside. And some kid pulled a knife on me and tried to tried to mug me. And he was like maybe 12 years old. Like he was a mm -hmm. tiny little kid. And I, I almost laughed at him. Um, and like just before I left, I realized that his knife was sticking out of my arm. <laughs> like he had literally just stabbed me in the arm and I didn't even realize it. Um, so I've got a scar from that one too. Um, I used to jump out of airplanes all the time. Um, lots of fun stuff, but I've never actually used any of that in, in a book. Um, and frankly, that just sounds dangerous and I don't have a whole lot of time. So like I just Google, I just jump on Google. Mm -hmm. It's easier. You don't need insurance for that. 
Yeah, definitely have not had uh, some of those experiences. But, uh, you know, I think that there is a level of making sure that you're pushed outside of your comfort zone. And I think that regardless of what that experience is, it's the more to me, it's the the feeling as to what those experiences and how you can relate to other people's stories um, based off of the experiences that you've had. So maybe I don't need to, you know, become a swinger and a secret shopper at a new age convert, but uh, I can relate somewhat to some of those experiences based off of the things that I've experienced. Yeah. I used to be an adrenaline junkie when I was younger. Not now. I was, I did the plane jump and like some of those things, but you know, the one thing I've never done is shot a real gun. Like I've shot paintball guns and BB guns. I've never shot a real gun. And I'm always like, that's something I'm going to do. So if anyone wants to take me to a gun range, let me know. <laughs> you need to come to my house. I, my my stepdad was a, an avid hunter um, and he swore like from a home protection standpoint, you always had to have a gun within six feet of wherever you were. It didn't do you any good. You know, because a lot of people have the, the handgun in their nightstand upstairs or whatever. And like, you know, if somebody breaks into mm-hmm. your house, you're, you're not going to have time to go and get it. Um, and I never really took that seriously until I got I got a concealed weapons permit. And in Florida, where I got it, you have to take some classes for that. Um, and two of the people that were in my particular class there um there were eight of us they were the victims of home invasions and that's why they were getting them somebody literally busted through their door held them captive and stole their stuff um so they were they were getting guns so the moral of the story is if you come to visit me within six feet of anywhere where you're standing there's most likely a weapon hidden away somewhere um firing a gun is fun but they're loud yeah they and are make loud. sure you make sure you clean them when you're all done yeah, I know my my uh, husband went, I think, last year, and he was shocked about how loud some of those guns were. Um, so is there anything else that struck you, J.A.D., about what you had to say? Uh, he brought up the stuff about living in a utopia and how few books there are about that. And, and you know, honestly, like that, that's probably true because who wants to really read about a perfect world? Um, and I, I honestly don't think I would want to live in one. I think humans thrive, you know, based on challenges and, and problems put in front of them. And if you take all that away and we're literally just lounging around, just enjoying, you know, every second of our life, uh, I think we're going to get lazy and we're probably going to die a lot sooner um, that we, we tend to thrive under, under, you know, when there's a good challenge in front of us. So he, he brought that up there. I just, I thought it was a cool comment because I've just never thought about it before. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I bet utopian fiction would be very boring, but yeah, I agree. I like a challenge, just not a a survivalist challenge. (laughs) What about you, JP? Anything that struck you? I really liked, uh, the themes with, you know, being a individual versus what it's like, uh, to not be an individual. Uh, I think you had said, Mm -hmm. um, that he had said, uh, we're just meat in motion. Um, I thought that was really striking to, to think about how to write themes, uh, surrounding those kind of concepts of individuality and what that means. Yeah. I think it was really interesting that he talked about exploring being an individual versus belonging and how those things kind of intersect and diverge. So that was, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. Also, the button chair thing, you know, that's been my philosophy. I think, you know, Stephen Pressfield is always like, get your butt in the chair. Um, And I've heard that advice from a lot of other authors, but I thought his take on, you know, don't think of it as a factory button chair. Think of it as a project. I thought Mm -hmm. that was really interesting. Did you have any thoughts on that? I mean, for me personally, there's a lot of times where I'll write myself in a corner and I kind of walk away and, you know, like I go on a run every day, almost five miles, just so I can think about what I'm going to write the next day. Um, And a lot of times I, I, you know, I don't solve it. 
and you know during all that and you know i keep thinking about it, i keep thinking about it i don't come up with a solution and then the second i sit down at my desk you know i, I start typing and bam there it is you know it just sort of sort of happens um and you know i've, I've gone weekends just stressing about it you know like i don't know what i'm gonna do next where's this character gonna go you know this is I, I i'm not sure um but then the second i sit down and actually do the work that that goes away and that, that could be why i try to write almost every day too um i, I think and you, and you get better at it um you know the thing that i had mentioned also that, you know at the beginning of all this about working on multiple endings at the same time um i've done that to solve problems you know that's one of the reasons a lot of my books have multiple point of views if i get hung up on one particular pov i'll just you know jump over to this character for a little bit and tell their story and then you know sooner or later i figure out whatever was going to happen with the other one and i can bounce back and kind of keep going with the book um it's you know i i, I have yet to write a book in 100 first person and that's that's the reason why because i feel like i could spend days getting you know running into a, a brick wall and, and not you know quite figure out how to get around it yeah that's definitely a difficult thing to do and you have to do some weird things in first person like you know uh, i always think of the twilight where she's like in a tent overhearing what other people are saying because there's just no other way to get that in there. So yeah, it's definitely difficult to do just first person. Yeah. And on the topic of, um, you know, butt and chair, putting in the hours versus the project, I think it's really difficult for a lot of people who are still in or coming out of that, you know, nine to five mindset to really look at writing as a form of like a project and like breaking it down into those pieces where yes, if I have a nine to five job, yes, I do have certain times that I work, that I write, that I uh, approach writing. But during that set chunk of time to look at it as if it is a project, as if I'm working on getting that first draft done, I'm not just here for two hours to type down words, um, but I actually have a, an end goal in mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, cool. So, JD, who's up next week? Next week, we've got Mary Atkins coming on. She's a former lawyer and Yale Law student graduate turned writing coach. Um, she's with HarperCollins, and she's got a podcast called The First Draft Club. Uh, she's going to offer some tips and basically just help us move past that blinking cursor. Yeah, sounds great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersingpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.